0: Thank you, Pastor Stacy. Uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. Amen. It's so good to be with you on this Sunday. Um, there's been some sickness that swept through my house. My son's over there sleeping. Uh, he just picked it up this morning. I guess while we were here, it kind of has manifested. So I've been praying over him during worship. Let's believe for God to heal him and your households, too. If you got sickness in your household, let me see a hand. Anybody? All right. That's a lot right there. Let's pray. Father, I just lift up all those who are sick, whether it's a cold, some type of virus, whatever pathogen. As a church body, we pray in your name, Jesus. We pray your blood over our loved ones that they might be delivered from this sickness today. Oh, Lord, may they be delivered and their strength restored in Jesus' name. Because nothing is too small or too great for you. You are the great and mighty healer. Amen. Amen. Also want to just thank the worship team. Thank you so much sir for coming up and let's give them a hand. It is really hard to sing spontaneously and, and stay coordinated as the spirit leads you into not do awkward transitions. So, hey, just awesome. Like I won't, I love that. I think that's kind of the, the purest form of worship. That's an opinion. And, and I think we're getting there, uh, so just continue to love on the worship team, and, and they want to hear your voices. I remember during that last song, when you backed away, I heard the voice of the congregation, and that was beautiful. So I know when, when they're up here, they want to hear your voices, so thank you guys. All right, so uh, today we're going to be in the number four sermon of a five-part series called Protecting or Pregnant with Promise. That's the name of the uh, sermon series. But this uh, sermon today that I prepared for you, that the Lord's given me, is called Protecting the Promise. Um, so as Pastor uh, Stacy said, my name is Bruce. My wife Helena is at home with our newborn. We have five children. That's who I am, in case you don't know me. So let's get into the message. All right, so Pregnant Promise. This uh, sermon series is about learning more in honoring the birth of Christ, right? We want to know, we, we heard the story, if you've grown up in church, maybe some of you haven't, you've heard the story of Christ time and time again, but I want to take you, and we as a, as a teaching team want to take you deeper into the word of God. And so the first sermon was have a petition, that was Pastor Stacy, then have a prepared heart, Rob spoke on that. Um, and then last week, Tony, December 10th, spoke on paying the price. So this brings us to protecting promise. Now, this title comes from the fact that Mary was holding the most important person in human history. Agreed? I mean, if you think about it, no one single event, aside from the creation of, of humans, right, the creation uh, in Genesis chapter 1, and then the fall in chapter 3, those are kind of the two most significant events in human history that took place prior to the birth of Christ, but nothing, nothing in the last 2,000 years has been this significant. So Mary, as we learned, right, Mary was keenly aware that she was carrying Christ, right? She was carrying this because of Gabriel's message to her. Right, now, I want to ask you guys, are you aware, this is a challenge right up front, and we'll get into this more, are you aware of what you were carrying? Like, wh- what are you carrying? Are, it's easy to think, you know, it's just little old me, but hey, since you've surrendered your life to Christ, you are carrying some promises, All right, this isn't all just about learning what Mary did. We're going to learn about that. But what are the promises that you're carrying? I'm going to challenge you now, and I'm going to challenge you again later. So, due to the facts of the circumstances, we're going to do a little deep dive. And keep in mind here that Satan, who has had great influence here on this earth, will stop at nothing using powerful people whom he influences to kill Jesus before he can begin his mission of saving mankind. And think about the way in which God brought Jesus into existence. Think about the situation. Jesus was born not of a royal family and not in a protected environment. It was a very precarious, a very dangerous time to be alive. Yes, there were more dangerous times possibly, but still, nonetheless, in Antiquity 2,000 years ago, life expectancy, medicine isn't where it is today. Number two, Jesus was born in a time where Israel had fallen back into apostasy. I mean, if you read your Bible, and I love reading my Bible, so when I read it, I I see time and time again. Usually, and if I could put a percentage on it, I think uh, Israel was in a state of apostasy 80 to 90% of the time. Okay? I mean, that's not, that's that's my roundabout assumption. But they were currently, at this time of Christ being born, they were definitely in that state of apostasy of a sinful, corrupt generation. I mean, honestly, there's very few more than two or three generations in a row that ever stay righteous before God has to allow something to happen to them and judge them and bring them back to repentance. This is no different. Number three, the corrupt religious system. This is kind of where a lot of that uh, apostasy came from. It was a system of Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes and priests, and this was institutionalized religion in the temple period. So, Nehemiah right, did a great thing, got the temple back, God's house was rebuilt, second temple exists now, and then along with it came a corrupt uh, religious-slash-political system. So, and at that time, and this was around, um, well, the 4 B.C. is actually, there was a little air made, so 4 B.C. is actually around the time of Christ, or was air made by the church later, so let's just say the time of Christ <clears throat> in the Roman Empire, there were puppet kings created. So if you think about it, um, does that sound familiar? Is there, ever, is there ever a time when the church kind of co-ops with the government in a corrupt way? I mean, throughout 2,000 years of church history, it's happened a lot. And it certainly happened when, when the church was in a time of comfort, not in a time of persecution. All right, so I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 if you have them or your Bible app. I'm going to have everything up on the screen, and I'm reading from the ESV version. So we're going to get right into the story. You know the background. You know what Mary and Joseph were facing, the state of affairs in the country at that time. Now we're going to jump into the Word. All right, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... For he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Isn't that amazing? Like Joseph, an honorable man, right? And, and Mary, an honorable woman, were caught in this situation. And they had a choice to make. And, and Joseph, not knowing like the truth, was going to divorce her. Quite the most honorable way he could dissolve the situation and not put her in public shame. But then as soon as God spoke to him and revealed himself, as soon as divine revelation came, what did he do? He obeyed God. You might be at a crossroads in your life where the, the, the obvious choice isn't a good one. But then God speaks. And that's why you got to be listening. Because when God speaks to you like he did to Joseph, it could be through a dream. It could be through a vision. It could be through other people. You need to listen. God will show you what to do. But you've got to seek him. You've got to be willing to listen like Joseph was. Verse 23, the prophecy here says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. But he did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name. Joseph called his name Jesus, just as the angel told him. So here we see the first example of God protecting Jesus from shame this time, right? Not as serious as some of the things that are coming, but God, through Joseph, protected Mary and him, his son Jesus, from shame through divine interaction as Joseph obeys the angel and stays with Mary. So as we continue into chapter two, if you know the story, the threat gets a lot more serious, all right, here we go. Verse 1, chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea <clears throat> in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been king of the Jews, or who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Pretty cool. So wise men from the east, most likely from the area of Babylon or other areas east of the Arabian desert. Because you got to remember Israel's on the west side, right? And then there's this trade route that goes all the way around this massive desert that nobody can cross. So we're talking about the east here, way out in, in, in the Babylon region. It could be Nineveh or somewhere where these guys came from. They saw that star, that bright shining star. And I don't know where the star was hanging in the sky. It might have been in the atmosphere, the stratosphere, beyond. But it was bright enough to where it really stood out. And gave them a cardinal direction, so they knew which way to go. God clearly was beckoning these men. And I don't know that the word really doesn't say, and I, I tried to look this up a little bit, but we don't, we don't know everybody if everybody saw this star. I, I don't think very many people actually saw it. How many of you have heard stories of God giving like visions? I mean, <clears throat> I mean, we could just go to the Bible, right? Paul and wrote to Damascus, right? Nobody else saw Jesus. He did, but he was right there. God does these kind of things. You could be in a room somewhere and you see a vision or you see uh, people have seen angels, right? And nobody else around you sees that. But that, that angel, that presence, that being is very much there. That's how God works. So it's not very much a stretch for me to say, well, God wanted to show these particular men. He, and he had a purpose for this. We're going to get into that. So Numbers 24, uh, and this is about an 800-mile journey, by the way. That's why some say it takes up to two years for them to get there. Technically, they could have gotten there probably in two months if they really hustled, 20 miles a day, but probably a little longer than that. (laughs) 800 miles away from Babylon and that region to Jerusalem. And obviously, they came to Jerusalem first, Jerusalem being only six miles north of Bethlehem. So God guided them to the capital before he guided them to the location. And it was all part of his grand plan so Numbers 24, 17 uh, prophesied this phenomenon it's in the, the, where we see a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The sign was understood by the Jews, and this is why these uh, wise men might have kind of known a little bit of what was going on, right? Judaism had been around for a while, and, and at the time of Babylon before Rome, you know, the, the you know, religions had, had, had spread throughout the region, so there was a little bit of an understanding here. And I really, when I was studying this, I I love my ESV study Bible, uh, and it said this. uh, And I think this is a really, really, really important point. Um, It says, it is doubtful that these quasi-pagan religious men understood Jesus' divine nature, but their actions, what these men did, were unknowingly appropriate and wonderfully foreshadowed the worship of Jesus by all gentile nations you see what happened there these wise men we're not yahweh followers they were not jews yet god gave them revelation from this faraway land and brought them right to where his son was born and what did they do they worshipped jesus they worshipped him that foreshadowed the abrahamic promise When God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 the first time, 16 or 18, spoke to him three times, reiterated the promise, like you will be a father of many nations, right? This promise was being fulfilled. This foreshadowing, right? We serve a God who does a lot of foreshadowing. He loves to be in the details, right? It's not the devil in the details. God is in the details. He loves this. All right, let's go back into the word. Verse 3, chapter 2. When Herod the king heard this, He was excited? No. Tell your neighbor he was troubled. (laughs) Say he was troubled. Look at the person next to you. Say, hey, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Who are we talking about, all Jerusalem here? Was that every person in Jerusalem? No, not at all. That was not every person in Jerusalem. The saying all of Jerusalem, I think, is like saying all of Washington or all inside the Beltway. (laughs) So. The Bible, right, the, the writer Matthew here is specifically talking about the Jewish elites, right? This, this when these wise men got, um, or when, they, when he heard about this and the wise men arrived, like it wasn't like everybody knew. And they were greatly troubled, greatly troubled. And verse 6 says, um, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't finish verse 4. So, <clears throat> and assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ is to be born. Okay, so, so Herod heard the news, and then he, he got his, uh, his, the Pharisees and all the religious elites who he was in, you know, cooperation with. They, they were accountable to him, honestly. That's how it worked. And they happily told him. I mean, they knew. Look at this. They knew. It's right there in the Word of God. They knew where the Messiah was going to be born. And instead of saying, well, you know, it may be this place. No, they knew it was in Bethlehem. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written. And this is in Micah 5-2, which is being quoted here in Matthew, verse 6, which is actually Micah 5-2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, Herod is afraid of a power coming, right? Herod is afraid, and, but, but, but why is Herod afraid? You see, the power structure and religious system of the Sanhedrin was also at stake. So, Herod's like, well, well who, who is this person? Like, is this the Messiah? Is, is the Messiah going to come? And, and most of the, they, they had in, misinterpreted a lot of them, a lot of the old prophecies about Jesus' second coming. And so, they were thinking that Jesus was going to come by force and take the kingdom from them. And the Sanhedrin, the religious elites along with Herod, though they weren't necessarily in charge, right, they were still subservient to Rome and to to Caesar, like, they loved their power structure. They loved the power they had, and they were consumed by Satan. These religious leaders, right, were honestly consumed by the power of Satan. They had given in to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and definitely the pride of life. All right, that's a temptation for every one of us. You may be like, "Well, this doesn't really relevant to me. I'm nobody that important." Well, look, you have the same temptations that these religious elites had, <clears throat> and re- Israel. And, and this is interesting. Think about today: the elites of this country, just like Israel, were willing to live in bondage, in this case, to Rome, so long as it meant keeping their power structure and their authority intact. How many people do you know? Maybe not personally. Hopefully are willing to keep, do anything to keep their power structure intact. I mean, I've seen it firsthand. I've seen it firsthand at work, you know, where I've, I've seen leaders talk about, you know, wanting to make sure they didn't, you know, push the wrong people. You know, that instead of standing for their convictions, they are like, eh, they're open about it. I've seen that. So this is a very real thing. We need, to, we need to wrestle with the text here. We need to wrestle with what's going on, and we need to ask ourselves these questions. We don't want to look at this as merely the amazing story of what happened, but no, what actually is happening here? How is this relating to us here and now? And I think it really, really is. Verse 7. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly, okay, because they came to him first, uh, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, because clearly only they'd seen it, uh, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child when you have found him. Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way six miles south of Bethlehem. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now at this point, Joseph and Mary don't know what Herod and the Sanhedrin are conspiring, do they? They're oblivious to it. Joseph, Mary, uh, the wise men, they they don't know what's going on here. So verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. These wise men came and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream... Not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Wow. Look what just happened there. Again, a dream. (laughs) Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For King Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. So, a lot just happened right there. Herod, in a stealth-like manner, attempted to stage a kidnapping or execution of Jesus. And the wise men, along with Joseph, were both warned in his dream to flee. They were all told what to do. Doesn't that remind you that, like, when you're in a precarious situation and you don't even know it, God is doing things behind the scene to protect you. How many of you have personal testimonies of God doing something like that? There was something you did not, I see the hands up. There was something you didn't know was going to happen to you, and before you knew it was going to happen, God had already removed you from the danger of that situation. That's amazing. See, God works the same way yesterday, today, and forever. So, (laughs) they were both warm in separate dreams to flee. Notice how the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, not Mary. Now, that's just simply due to the fact that Joseph was Mary's husband and protector. So, God worked through the hierarchy of the family. He revealed it to Joseph. And Joseph, right, the head of the house, the decision maker, made that decision that night to flee. So third time, they protected the promise. So now, um, <clears throat> so they fleed, um, be warned by the angel. Joseph protects Jesus by fleeing with his family to Egypt. And let me just say this real quick. Joseph and Mary had to move countries in order to protect Jesus. They had to go to a foreign land, and that was about 80 miles south. Let me ask you this. What changes are you willing to make in order to protect what's in you? If you don't think it's valuable, you won't make any. If you think God's promises are unlikely to come to pass in you, you won't try very hard to protect those promises, will you? Next, the genocide takes place. Verse 16. When Herod, and he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. When, he, when, that, when that was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah came to pass. It says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel's weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are no more. You see, Herod had been tricked. God had tricked Herod. And simultaneously, God had tricked Satan. Let me tell you, church, this is how Satan works. It's how he always works. Satan starts from his example. I mean, we look at the example of the Garden and Eden. Satan starts through deception. He starts through a cunning, deceptive, more non-threatening approach. Right? Look at that. Let me, let me worship him. That was entirely a lie. He's the father of lies. He starts there, but where does Satan end? He ends with force. Once he has the upper hand, once he's manipulated his way to the upper hand in your life, he will go in with force. This is exactly how he worked in Genesis chapter 3. And if you read your Bible, I'm telling you time and time and time again, Satan sometimes has the upper hand. Right, right now, I mean, in, across the world, he largely has the ruling elites, right? where Whoever they are, the, 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 the central bankers and, and all those powers, those unelected powers out there in the world, Satan's got them. So what we're seeing today is more of a use of force than ever because he didn't have this much authority until more recently. What was he doing before that? Right? He was bringing in the lies. He was bringing in... You know, he was slowly legitimizing same-sex relationships, things like that, right? He was slowly legitimized. Now it's forced. Now you can get fired if you make a statement against that. That's real persecution. When somebody tells me they're being persecuted and there's no cost to them, that's not persecution. I'm sorry if I'm telling you that, hey, you got sin in your life. And you need, to, you, need to, you need to not just confess it, but repent and turn from it. I'm not persecuting you. <clears throat> there is no cost if you don't listen to me. You're not losing your job. You're probably not losing that relationship with whoever that is you're sleeping with. You're not losing anything. But as soon as there's a cost, people are out. Mary and Joseph have successfully protected the promise of their son Jesus, the Messiah, from the clutches of death. And Joseph must continue to hear from God to protect Jesus once more again from God via an angel of the Lord in a dream with specific instructions. So I just read the verse. Joseph quietly moves his family to Galilee to raise Jesus, fleeing. I'm sorry, I didn't read this section. um, Fleeing from the eyes of Herod's son. So what had happened is um, after Herod had died, Shortly thereafter, right, they moved back, and then his, the, the kingdom of, of Israel, the provinces, right, were separated, and Herod had three sons, each was given, Herod the Great, each of his sons was given a section in the, in the southern area that governed Judea was this guy, Achilles, and, and God revealed to Joseph, hey, it's not safe moved to Galilee, moved to Nazareth, a very low-profile and humble town, probably not a place where Joseph could attain a lot of wealth. No, probably not. Not a very prominent place, but that's where Jesus himself was raised. Isn't it amazing how God used these people, this humble working-class family, to bring forth the greatest event in history, his son, his Savior and Redeemer, Jesus I'm telling you, Jesus uses the least of us to do the greatest things. Just look at how God protected Jesus. He didn't have to allow for such an elaborate and amazing story to take place. He could have easily protected Jesus supernaturally, having him born to a wealthy family with greater resources than Mary and Joseph. But God chose not to. Why? I would argue that God is proving here, with his most significant act in human history, since he's created us, that choose, he is choosing to work with working class people, shepherds, giving them all divine revelation through visions and dreams and encounters with angels. We, you see, he knew that Satan was going to destroy his son if he let him. He was going to destroy Jesus. And instead of stopping it with his almighty hand in a supernatural fashion, he used humans to prevent the death of Jesus I mean, that's how much God cares about you. He doesn't have to care about you that much. He's good. He's in heaven. He's good. But he wants to have your heart. He wants to have your attention. He wants to have that level of intimacy and community with you where he can give you a revelation and you can action it right away. That's the relationship. That's the level of relationship that God wants with you. He brought Jesus in the world the most vulnerable of conditions. And I believe he did all this because his heart, as God our Father, is to live and work out his plans through us, not through himself, but through us. Just look at what happened when Jesus was tempted. Didn't Jesus have the opportunity to turn rocks and Satan point at those rocks and say, You make those bread, you're hungry. And what did he say? Man does not live by by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's saying, "I, I live by faith. Jesus, right? Saying, I live by the words of my Father, the words that God gives me. That's the ultimate example. Jesus facing that intense persecution said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Satan knew this, that's why he included it in the temptation narrative. The big point here is that Jesus Emmanuel is God with us. And it's though he's sitting at the right hand of God and his helper, Holy Spirit, Greek, paraclete, the helper is with us. So one challenge of application, if I haven't given you enough already, is twofold, and it's this. Number one, what are the promises of God for your life? I asked you at the beginning, I gave you a little time to think about it. What are the promises of God for your life? And number two, are you stewarding them? Simeon and Anna had been promised to God through divine revelation that they would see the Messiah before their death. They were just a part of the plan to glorify God, but what is your promise from God? Joseph, Mary, the wise men, the angels, God, all had partners. They all had partnered together to protect baby Jesus, right? They all protected that promise until he could be born. You see, all of us Christians carry some type of promise. We carry Christ. But some of us never actually give birth, never manifest him in the world around us. What are the promises that God has given you, and can you name them? You see, we can't live in a place of joy if we don't have anything to look forward to. How can you experience joy right here and right now when you don't have anything to look look ahead to? That's a serious question, isn't it? If you don't know your promises, I want to invite you and I want to ask you to pen a time. Right, we're going into the holidays. I don't know what your work schedule is like, but pen a time every day. Hopefully, it's during a regular devotional time you have scheduled, and you need to ask God, "What are His promises?" God, what are you promising me? What do you want me to be doing right now? Right? He's got you with a family. He's got you in a workplace. He's got you in retirement, whatever it is. But that's that's not enough just to exist right here and right now where you're supposed to be. No, you need to look forward. God, what do you have in the future for us? You need to know what God is promising you, and you need to be moving towards that promise. So let me give an example. Um... I haven't always been great at stewarding God's promises, but when I was young, and by young I mean mid-twenties, I'm, I'm 39 now, some of you might think I'm young. Uh, I don't exactly consider myself young anymore, uh, but I <laughs> always get a good reaction when I bring age into the, into the message. Uh, I, feel, I felt God when I was a young man, early twenties, I felt God telling me when I sought him on this issue of future wife, I felt him telling me to marry a godly woman. You see, I had grown up in the church. My parents were missionaries, came back when I was two, and I had been in a decent, pretty good church, lively church environment, and there were, uh, it was about 500 people in the church. Those are a good amount of kids, and I'm a millennial, so there was a lot of people in my uh, my birth year, right? There's a lot of people my age out here uh, in, 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 the, in the United States. And so lots of females my age, you know, teenage years, early 20s, but not, I'm telling you, it was crazy. Like, I always felt God saying, Hey, hold out, wait, I've got someone for you. Right? Every time I asked God about it. But the problem was, I didn't really see a lot of fruit of that. You see, my problem was every woman of virtue in the church had no interest in me. I'll just be honest, they didn't. I mean, I was not uh, attracting the right type of woman. Now, as soon as I step out of the church and I'm in my car scene because I was a car guy, uh, lots of women were attracted to me. <laughs> lots of worldly women were attracted to me. And so I had to live a life of ridicule, you know, being asked if I was gay, right, because I didn't have a girlfriend very often or for very long. Because <laughs> it didn't take much for me to, to roll out if I saw things going, going the wrong way. So I had a serious problem, and by the time I'm 24, I'm really starting to wrestle with this. I know that sounds pretty young, but, like, I thought I had done everything right. But I remember what a friend had told me, one of my mentors, um, back from, yeah, I guess at that point, my early 20s. He had said, Bruce, when I was single, I got before the Lord, and I felt the Lord telling me to make a list. So I made a list of everything I wanted in a wife. You know all the things, right? And and it could be deep and superficial or whatever in between. So I did that. I was like, all right, I got that. Um, he also told me something else. You know what he said? He said, when you make that list, look at that list, and then ask yourself this important question: What do you think I'm going to ask? Would that girl that you just wrote out, right, you didn't draw a picture, this is all text here, you know, you don't know exactly what she's going to look like, but would that girl who I'm making all these ideals and I'm writing all these uh, requirements of, would that girl be interested in me? (laughs) Yeah. You know, and at that time, I didn't really feel comfortable answering that question. In fact, I didn't feel qualified to answer that question. I feel like I needed to ask one of them, but I wouldn't dare do that, right? I didn't want to (laughs) get, I would have been probably hurt, but the reality was no, at that time in my life, no, and I knew that was the answer, and maybe instead of admitting it up front, I just kind of started working on it. I kind of started working on it, and then about four years later, Helena walks into my life, right? Right? And initially, it wasn't love at first sight. It was, a, it was a, you know, we're doing a Bible study together here at college. And it just bloomed into this divine God-written love story that I've been waiting for my entire life. It, it was amazing. I had given up my house. I had four cars. I used to race every weekend. I was doing really well as a young 20-year-old. I sold all that, all the things I thought I needed to do to attract her, and went to school with one car and a savings account. And then joined ROTC, which I thought was a terrible idea. God, why are you making me do this? You know, I don't want to be in the military and have a family. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> and so all these things that I didn't think I was supposed to do that did not make sense We're not wise. I did. Why? Because that's what God told me to do. I finally had a deep connection with God, a real spiritual renewal in my life when I was about 22. Yeah, you still feeling sick, son? Oh, thank you, so much. Okay. To steward and protect the promise that God had given me of a godly wife, I had to participate in the process. Much like Joseph and Mary did. And oh, by the way, others will come alongside you. Others came alongside me. You know, sometimes you'll get the best advice from a person that doesn't like you. Am I right? Because they're going to be honest with you. Look, people will hold you accountable in the process but you got to let them. you got to let people hold you accountable. Mary was carrying the Christ, and so are you. She knew it was precious. Do you know what God is... Do you know what you're carrying? Do you know how precious that is? You carry the promise of a fulfilling and abundant life here on this earth that continues on into eternity. All right, so... If God isn't in this... Is it going to get easier and not harder? Think about that. Do does, does sometimes things get harder? Many people assume because it gets harder that we made a wrong turn or, or God quit on us. Aren't you glad that Mary and Joseph made all the sacrifices? Because didn't it get harder? It went from, okay, angel told me to marry her. Great. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Lord. Oh, wow. Wow. All right, I, I did, I, I still love her, so I'm a guy that can marry her now and I don't have to divorce her. You did something amazing, wow. That's not so bad, but then when you're about to get killed, it's it a whole lot worse. <laughs> Many people assume because it gets harder that we made a wrong turn. God didn't quit on them. He's not quitting on you just because it's gotten harder. So it's common to get so wrapped up in our trials that all we can think about is ourselves. Our gaze moves from the future to the present and from others to ourself. That's a natural progression. You you have to you have to stand against that.